0: You're back for — we are in part two of this message. So if you just got scared — oh man, Pastor Ryan has eight points. We covered five of them last week, all right? And it was a to be continued. I think I went a a good 45 minutes or so last week, and if I was going to try to finish it, it was going to take us up to probably an hour and 10 minutes of preaching. The good news on that, I told my my family on the way in, I told my wife, I said, "Um, get ready. I think this may be the shortest message i preached in like months or maybe a year or so." And instead of being disappointed, like, I want to hear more of the Bible, she, she put her fist over to fist bump me. She said, we can be at lunch by 1130. That's not the right heart, is it, guys? She said, and, and my 11-year-old Trey, he said, Mom, we come to learn from the Word. I said, that's right, Trey. And then Annalise, my 8-year-old, said, but Dad does preach for a while sometimes. And uh, she said, Dad does preach for a while. She only comes in on Sunday nights. She's in the kids' class this morning and uh, and uh, and then one of my i think it was TJ said our 16-year-old i think he said he said it is always weird when a guest preacher comes and they only preach like 30 minutes i'm always kind of like that was that's weird why is it so fast or whatever and my father-in-law has been a pastor of the same church 47 years and he preaches much shorter usually like 25 minutes and uh, 25 30 minutes and TJ said every time i go up there it's always weird when i it's always weird for me when papa's only done and my wife's like can you be more like my dad please but i'm not sure so, I, don't, I do think that today's message is be a little on the shorter side, um, and I'm not doing that on purpose, it's just the way that the message ended up. It was either an hour and 15 minute marathon, or today you get to lunch by 1130. Maybe, don't hold me to it, all right? I might figure out some stuff to talk about that's not in my notes, but uh, reminder of where we're at, Genesis 20, we're walking verse by verse through the book of Genesis. This is our 25th message in this book, and uh, Genesis is such an important book for us to understand. It's a book of the foundations of our faith, it's really the foundations of scripture. If, if what's, what, what God teaches us in Genesis, what he tells us isn't true, then the rest of the Bible kind of crumbles, it's the pillars that hold it up. It tells us who God is and where we came from and why we're here and God's plan and how we got to this place of some craziness in our world. It teaches all of those things, begins to point to our redeemer, Jesus Christ. And, and so a very important book for us to understand we saw last week, we were in Genesis 20, and I think we looked through, I guess, the first, oh, I'm not sure, eight, nine, ten verses. And you see verse number two. Would you read if you're there? If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you if you're following along on a phone or a tablet. I'll be reading from the King James Version of the Bible. Would you read aloud with me, Genesis 20, verse number two. Let's read that aloud. Ready? Begin. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah." We see up to this point in in a lot of ways, Abraham, and really throughout Scripture, Abraham is this giant of the faith. He is this man, the father of Israel, he is the one that God made a covenant, he's called the friend of God. In Hebrews 11, what we call the Hall of Faith chapter, he is given more airtime, if you will, more, more, more space on the page than any other character in Scripture, speaking of his faith, speaking of his life, he and Sarah. Abraham is this giant of the faith. But we saw last week as he begins to move after God had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah in chapter 19, moving into chapter 20. Abraham chose deceit, he chose to lie, he chose to sin. We looked at this last week, and I gave us the title, Eight Realities of Sin. He lied and said because—I um, I guess because his wife was attractive and he was worried kings at that time, if they—he thought they might kill him so they could get his wife to take—bring her uh, into the king's harem. This had already happened um, a few chapters back in Genesis 13, it had already happened once. And so Abraham had done this back then and really had kind of gotten away with it, had not gotten in trouble, and it's a dangerous thing when we get away. We think we get away with sin because it emboldens us. And he had kind of gotten away with it in Genesis chapter number 13, and so he does it again. He says, she's my sister. That way, he can protect himself. He's not thinking about what's best for his wife. He's not thinking about what's best with his relationship with God. He's thinking about what's best for me. She's my sister, that way nobody comes after me, nobody hurts me. And, and she lied. I saw somebody — I think I forget who this was actually this week — somebody texted me this, if it were modern day, and Abram and Sarah were at a game, the kiss cam on the — Abraham and Sarah spotted on kiss cam at the game there. She's my sister. He, he lied. This is not my wife. This is my sister. And we looked at some realities, eight realities of sin last week by way of review. I don't spend a lot of time on each point. If you'd like to listen to it, if you missed it, you can go back on our Facebook page or our website or our podcast, all of the places where it's archived. But a reminder for all of us on the realities of sin, number one, sin affects all of us. Do you ever start to think, I'm the only one that can't get it all together? I'm the only one that keeps having a struggle in this area. Everybody else around me, everyone else that comes to church, their marriage is perfect and I'm the one that struggles. Everybody else that comes, and we start to think, and I talked about social media kind of exacerbates this issue in our lives. We see everybody else's highlight reels while we live our blooper-filled lives. And we start to think, man, pastor doesn't struggle with sin, and that person doesn't struggle, and we all, sin affects all of us. It's a reality, and it's a temptation, and it's a danger, and it's ever-present a possibility in all of our lives, and, and we talked about that last week, that it, it, Moses struggled with a temper and killed a man, Gideon struggled with doubt and fear, Noah got drunk, Elijah and Job got completely despondent and depressed, wishing God would kill them, David committed adultery, Solomon looked for fulfillment in women and wealth, Peter cussed and denied Christ, Samson dishonored his parents and got mixed up with wicked women. Eve had the perfect husband and lived in the perfect place and still struggled with discontentment and covetousness. Sin affects all of us. I said number two, sin hurts those around us. Your actions don't only affect you. It's why one of Satan's lies in this day and age is is live and let live. If it makes you happy as long, you, you do what you want to do. The problem is that sin, when you choose things against Scripture, it doesn't only impact you. The sin of the teenager impacts his siblings and his parents. The sin of the parents impacts their children and their friends. The sin of the pastor impacts the church, and we could continue on. Our sin, our, our wrong choices always have impact on those around us. That's why we should be careful about that which we allow into our lives. We saw here in, in, uh, in, in his life, sin gets easier to repeat. He had already done this once in chapter 13, and something that we wouldn't have been able to bring ourselves to after a while, we get conditioned to it, and it gets easier and easier. And not only does it get easier, but then we saw last week that it always grows. The flesh is never satisfied. That thing you think is going to fulfill your flesh, it may for a moment, but it's never fully satisfied. It's always going to need more. It's always going, your, your, the, 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 the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, it's always going to want more. There's never enough to bring lasting fulfillment. It always grows. And we saw in chapter 12, it was Abraham who had lied, but now in this chapter, it's grown and he's involved his wife. And now it's not only Abraham that's lying, but his wife is also joining in in his sin. She is now lying. And then we saw number five, our last point last week, sin hurts our testimony and our witness. Do you remember? It was Abimelech who was actually acting more like a follower of God than Abraham, the friend of God. Abimelech was the one that said, I acted in integrity. I acted in honesty. I didn't do anything unlawful. And and this, this one that is your promised son, if you will, this one that you're going to bring the Redeemer through his line, he's the one acting like an unbeliever, and the unbeliever was the one acting like a believer. What a a terrible witness and testimony it is when people look, Madison, good to see you from Florida. Welcome back. What a terrible testimony that is for us as believers to have less character and less fear of God than the unbelievers. And then we come where where we left off. We left off on verse number 10. We come this morning starting in verse number 11. Notice what Abraham says. So Abimelech says to Abraham in verse 10, why did you do this? Why would you do this to us? Why would you come into our country and, and really put my life at risk? Because God had told Abimelech, you're, you're a dead man if you put your hands on Sarah. If you have any physical relationship with Sarah, you're as good as dead. Why would you put my life at risk with your sin, Abraham? And he asked him that in verse number 9 and verse number 10. What, what, what have you, why have you done this to us? Verse 11, and Abraham said, because I thought, by the way, be careful about your thoughts. That's not even in my notes. Honey, we might not make it to 1130 at lunch, but I'm adding some stuff to the notes here. But be careful. It's it's amazing when I see people making some really bad decisions. Often when I ask them, "Why, why are you doing that? Will I think or I feel? Will I think? Will I feel? Will I? Go back to scripture. Go back to righteousness. Go back to unchangeable truths. Abraham said, I thought, and be careful, our thoughts can be very deceitful. The Bible says, the heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We can convince ourselves of things that are not true that lead us to do things that we will regret because we get get mixed up in our thoughts and our feelings. Thoughts and feelings are terrible masters. They're terrible guides in our lives. You know what is, is a great guide is truth. Be careful. he said back to the notes. Abraham said, because I thought, verse 11, surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they will slay me for my wife's sake. Isn't it amazing how we can justify our wickedness in spiritual clothes? Why why didn't you do this? Well, I deceived you, and I lied, and I did wrong against God because I thought you folks don't really love God. Does that make any sense? Here's why. I didn't think there was any fear of God in this place, so I showed my lack of a fear of God, a respect or a reverence for God, in my actions. It's kind of like the parents, that your child loses their temper with their sibling, and the way we correct them sometimes is we lose our temper to correct our children losing their temper. That makes no sense. The wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. And he says, because you didn't have a fear of God, I didn't know that you would act according to biblical truth. I feel like it's okay for me to not act according to biblical truth. I thought, he said in verse 11, there's no fear of God in this place. They'll slay me for my wife's sake, verse 12. And yet indeed, she is my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. What is another reality of our sin? The sixth reality of sin. We are good at justifying our sin. We're good at justifying it, aren't we? Well, I have a good reason why I'm lying, Abimelech, let me tell you, the fear of God isn't in this place. The irony was the fear of God wasn't in Abraham's life when he justified his sin. They're gonna kill me, so it's okay if I lie. Well, God will understand just this once because of this situation I find myself in. It's just a little white lie. I'm gonna tell you in, at the end of our message how this lie, in some ways, humanly speaking, could, uh, could have put God's redemption plan... At risk. The redemption plan for Christ to come through Abraham, this could have put that at risk. Abraham, just a little white lie with a king that I don't know, that I'll probably only be here for a little while, could have had, ram- and really in some ways did have, ramifications for generations in Abraham's life. Circumstances, Pastor Ryan, allow for me to compromise my integrity in this one instance. Well, Pastor Ryan, my boss is dishonest, so that is, that's why I can do this. We justify, don't we? Well, Abimelech might not be a godly king, so I can act in ungodly ways. Well, my boss is dishonest, so I can be dishonest back to him. Well, my spouse is uncaring, so I have to fulfill my needs somewhere. We justify, don't we? We justify our sins. I really have to provide for my family, so compromising my integrity here, cutting the corners there, cheating on that a little bit, lying to that client to get that sale. All of these things, what is that? We, we are great, we are masters at justifying our choices, and yea, our sins when they benefit us, just like Abraham was here. It sounded really good. Why would you do something like this to us? Because you don't fear God. But the reality is, that was no justification. What he thought might be Abimelech's view toward God did not justify his disobedience to God. By the way, what else did he do to justify his sin? Not only did he he twist things and put them in spiritual clothes, he used a little truth to justify, well, here's the thing, what I told you kind of is true. She is like halfway related to me. She is my father's child from another person. There is some family relation there. So what I said isn't fully a lie. And again, aren't we good at shading the truth toward our benefit? Let me ask you this. What he said, even though it was halfway true, was that intention, what, the reason he said it, it, was he trying to deceive? Of course he was. He wasn't trying to explain their family lineage. He was trying to make them believe, we have no personal relationship. This is my sibling. He was deceiving. When you go to a court of law in America, what do they, they do? They make you raise your right hand, you will put your hand on a Bible, and you'll say, I will swear to tell the what? I swear to tell the tr- — some of you have been in court a few times, huh? I swear to tell the truth, the what? Whole truth and nothing but the truth. Why do they say all three of those phrases? I swear to tell the truth because you can tell the truth and not tell the whole truth. Or you can tell the truth and add something additional to the truth that changes the narrative completely. It changes what they believe happened completely. It changes what they think is going on completely. So they say, I swear to tell the truth. The whole truth, I'm not going to leave out things, again, uh, sometimes our kids are masters at this, and I, I guess they get it from their parents probably, but, but we have five children, and you know what's amazing? Whenever I ask, When there's a conflict in the home, whenever I ask them what happened there, somehow they give me true statements, but those statements always work out in the best possible favor for them. So what happened here? Why, why, why are you fighting with your sister? Well, she hit me. So then what am I? I'm mad at her. You hit him. Why would you hit him? What's going on? And then I lose my temper. You lost your temper, and it doesn't work very well. And then come to find out, why did you hit him? Well, he, I hit him because he was punching me 25 times. Like, you left that out. Why didn't you start with? Why didn't you lead with? I was punching her 25 times, so she defended herself once. No, all I get is the piece of truth that most best benefits that child. It's in our nature. And what do we do? Well, I told the truth, but did you tell the whole truth? did you tell nothing but the truth did you take some stuff away or did you add some stuff to it and so here abraham he's justifying it that i have i have i have told the truth but it wasn't the whole truth and it wasn't it was not nothing but the truth number 7 what do we see in this passage verse 13 and it came to pass when god caused me to wander from my father's house that i said unto her this is thy kindness which thou shalt show unto me, which thou uh, at every place whither we shall come, say of me, he is my brother. Verse number 13, here's what I see. I see Abraham here finally acknowledging his sin. In the seventh reality of sin in our lives, sin must be acknowledged before God can give victory. He comes and he says, because Abimelech said to God, not only did Abraham tell me, she was his sister. She told me he was her brother. They both told me the same story, God. Don't kill me. It's your people. And Abraham here, I see him somewhat coming clean. Look, this was on me. I told my wife, if you really love me, everywhere we go, you'll go with this story. In any new city we go into, I'm going to tell them you're my sister and I need you to cover for me. And Abraham, I believe here, and and I believe this for another reason, one, we see this lie, this thing repeated back in Genesis 12, and again here in Genesis 20, we never see this again in his life. He had obviously at one point thought, this is going to be a pattern, a lifestyle for us. Everywhere we go, this is going to be how I deceive. And we never see it again. So I, I do believe as I read it and I study it, I believe that Abraham, he, he, he got he got it right before God. I believe that he got it right to Abimelech here. He admitted, this is why I did it. This is what happened. It was on me. It's really not on my wife. I take the ownership. I'm the one that asked her to do this. And here's a reminder for all of us that are struggling with, with possibly habitual sin or something that we keep going back to that we can't get victory over. I want us to remember this. You've got to get honest before God and before man if you ever want to get victory if you continue to blame and to excuse and to deflect and to justify you will never get victory what did david do in psalm 51 the psalm he wrote after the prophet nathan had confronted him with his sin of adultery with bathsheba nathan came and came to david and said what would you do david if a guy did all this and david said i'd kill that guy if he ever did this and nathan said thou art the man it's you i'm talking to You're the one that's done all this. And David, you can read at Psalm 51, what does he do? He comes before God, and what does he say? Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this iniquity in thy sight. I've done this wrong before. What did he say? God, it wasn't Bathsheba's fault. It wasn't my, my parents' fault, the way I was brought up. It wasn't just my flesh's fault. God, it's me. I own it. I'm sorry. He said in, in, in there, he tells us, a broken and a contrite spirit, God will not refuse. God accepts the sacrifices of a broken heart. When God sees humility and repentance, God said, I can pour mercy and grace and restoration on that. But if somebody stands and, and they, they refuse, the Bible says, uh, he that often hardeneth his neck shall be suddenly uh, shall be suddenly destroyed And that without remedy in Proverbs. He that's unwilling to admit, to acknowledge, to say, God, I've sinned against you. I'm sorry, I'm wrong. If we stand up and, say, and blame and excuse, and, and we live in a victim mentality today in this society, it's not my fault, it's their fault. No, God, I acknowledge my part in this, and I'm sorry. That's when God can give us victory, when we own it. Warren Wearsby, the preacher of old, said a lighthearted admission of sin is not the same as a brokenhearted confession of sin. A lighthearted admission of sin is not the same as a brokenhearted confession of sin. Does it ever break your heart, church family, that your sin breaks God's heart? Or have you grown comfortable with it? It's just a part of your lifestyle. Sarah, everywhere we go, we're going we're to keep this lie up. This is who we are. You want to have victory over whatever sin, that besetting sin you have, that does so easily beset you, gets you off track? You want to have victory? It has to start with humility. It has to start with acknowledgement. Like the prodigal son, what did he say when he found himself in the pig pen in that parable that Jesus told? What did he say? He said, against thee to God, to God thee and the only have I sinned and done this wickedness. And then what does he say? God, I'm, I'm sorry, and then I'm going to go back and get it right with you. I'm going to get it right, God, with you first, and then with my dad. And that is where true repentance comes. We get it right with God. We acknowledge it. We own it. We're honest. We're humble. And then we go and we get it right with those that we've wronged. I confess to you, God, I'm going to f- confess to my Father. Here's the reality, church. There is no restoration without repentance, and there is no cleansing without confession. Sometimes we're sorry we got caught. And until we're really sorry, not that we got caught, and not, we're not just sorry for the consequences of our sin, but we're truly repentant over our sin, we will not get victory. We will not have, we will not know that joy and that restoration. Now God's mercy I love that where sin does abound, God's grace does much more abound. There is nothing that you have done and nothing that we could ever do that God cannot forgive and God cannot restore. Now, there may be consequences that we have to walk through. There is nothing beyond the forgiveness, the reach of His mercy. He's, He's rich in mercy, plenteous in mercy. His grace, it, it, it abounds where our sin abounds. But we, if we want to be partakers of that, we must come to a place of honesty and humility. If we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He says there is complete cleansing available to you, but it starts with, will you own it? Will you confess? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. After this, we don't see Abraham committing the same sin in this way again. Now, we do see that his son did, Isaac, and we see that, that sometimes the sins of the parents our, our children know of or see what we do, and it impacts their lives. But it seems as though Abraham turned from this sin. That word turn means to repent, to do an about-face, a change of mind. He repent. It seems from the biblical record that he repented of this sin and did not find himself in this place again. I saw a tweet this week on the effects of habitual sin, if we could put that up, and he said, habitual sin saps our joy, obstructs our fellowship with God. Bible says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Dishonors and grieves God, robs us of assurance before God, tramples on the grace of God, hinders our usefulness for God, deprives us of rewards promised by God, and I like this statement, sin is never worth what it takes away. So, we look and say, this sin has this to offer me, this short-term pleasure, this benefit, this advancement in my career, this—whatever this, it might be. But the reality is, one of the realities of sin is, it's never worth what it takes away. Lust, when it's conceived, bringeth forth sin. Sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Never worth what it takes away. Are you struggling with a habitual sin? Now, all of us have a sin nature. We talked about this last week walk in the Spirit, that you not fulfill the lust of the flesh, until we're in our glorified body in heaven where all of us are going to have times of weakness and and frail. Like the songwriter said, once again, I faced Satan this morning and I battled him all the day long. That's not as concerning that you battle it all the day long. The concerning part is when we stop battling. When we stop trying to walk in the Spirit and we just say, this is who I am. Well, I'm just going to partake and indulge in this open, unrepentant sin in my life. That's where the problem is. Do you find yourself there? Maybe it's known with those around you, and maybe it's not known. That thing that has a hold on your heart, that stronghold of sin in your life, and here's my last reality that I see in this chapter, and it's the most encouraging one. Number eight, sin can only be overcome by God's grace. Sin can only be overcome by God's grace. Look at verse number 14. And Abimelech took sheep, and oxen, and men servants, and women servants, and gave them unto Abraham, and restored him Sarah his wife. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before thee, dwell where it pleaseth thee. And unto Sarah he said, Behold, I have given thy brother—I think there's a little sarcasm in here—I have given thy brother—remember that guy you told me was your brother? Hey Sarah, I have given my, thy brother a thousand pieces of silver. That we're, I'm, I'm told that at that time, a dowry for a wife was—the uh, maximum dowry or, or thing you would give was ten shekels of silver, ten pieces of silver. He gave him the dowry of a hundred wives. Again, what a beautiful picture gave that back to him of, of God's grace, giving us what we don't deserve uh, when it was Abraham who, who had given his wife to be Abimelech's wife. He says, a a thousand pieces of silver, behold, he is to thee a covering of the eyes, and to all that are with thee and with all other. thus she was reproved. So Abraham prayed unto God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maidservants, and they bare children, for the Lord had fast closed up the wounds of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife." I love here that we see a beautiful picture of mercy, forgiveness restoration. Abraham and his wife, their marriage is made whole. They're back together. And, and I see here Abraham praying. The one who had been lying to Abimelech is now praying for Abimelech. I, I, again, I'm trying not to read too far into the passage, but personally when I look at this, I see God's grace at work here. I see a restoration. I see Abimelech not in trouble anymore. I see Abraham and his wife back together. I see God opening back the wombs of the ladies in Abimelech's household. And the Bible says this, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. old Behold, old things Our old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. God's grace can overcome your sin. It is only when we are in Christ that we can know the power to overcome our sin. In this passage, we see Abraham's sin was overcome by God's mercy and grace. Abraham was offered forgiveness. He was offered land. He was offered a thousand shekels, an incredible inheritance. To me, when I read that, what a beautiful picture of the gospel. The undeserved love and favor because of God's intervention. Abraham thought he was getting away with his sin and God came and intervened and God and Abraham received far more than he deserved for his sinful actions because of the intervention of God. Isn't that the gospel story that you and I, we are, we are dead in our trespasses and sins and we, we receive far more than we could ever deserve. Why? Because of the loving, merciful, grace, gracious intervention of God in our lives. He divinely intervened to spare many, many from the effects of Abraham's sin. It was God's grace in this passage that spared Abimelech great judgment. Without God's grace, in verse number three, he was a dead man. The same is true of you and me today. Without grace, God's grace in our lives, we're but dead men. It was God's grace that spared Abraham the repercussions of lying to multiple powerful kings and spared him the tragedy of losing his wife. Do you realize that either of these these national leaders that he lied to could have put him to death easily? Either of them could have kept Sarah to be their wives in defiance of God. He wasn't dealing with a a, a religious leader, he was dealing with ungodly kings. But God's grace, without Abraham even asking for it, spared him the repercussions of his sinful actions. It was God's grace that spared Sarah the heartache of being taken advantage of physically and having to marry multiple men because of her husband's fleshly choices to sin in lying. It was through God sparing Abraham's wife. It was through God sparing Abraham's wife in this chapter that Isaac would eventually come from Abraham, and through his lineage would ultimately come the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. The beautiful grace of God in this chapter kept God's redemption plan on track to bring grace to the whole world. Even God closing the wombs of the women was an act of grace. Let me explain. The commentator John Phillips said this of this passage. He said, we are, he said, the Lord had fast closed, verse, verse 18, uh, the Lord had fast closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech. He says this, the motive is obvious, surely. Why did they close up? Why did God close up the wombs for a season? He said, the promised seed, Isaac, which would lead to Jesus, was to come through Sarah. The whole preceding incident was designed by the evil one either to prevent the birth of Isaac... Or else to so discredit that birth that nobody would ever be able to brush off the insinuation that Isaac was Abimelech's son, not Abraham's. So to safeguard Sarah, to silence any such suspicions, God acted as he did. He frustrated and foiled the devil by rendering sterile and barren every woman in Abimelech's household. And the curse of sterility remained until such time as Abraham prayed for its removal. Even what was probably a heartache to those women was a picture of God's grace to keep the redemption plan from being able to be cast doubt upon. Well, is that Isaac? Is that really Abraham's son? God promised Abraham, but you were with Abimelech for a little while, but it was clear that couldn't. number one, they didn't have physical relations, but even if they had, all of the women in that household in that season had become barren. God's grace works in unusual ways in our lives to keep his plan moving in our lives. We try all kinds of different things to overcome our struggles with sin in our lives, don't we? We try to turn over a new leaf. We try to get more disciplined. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with discipline and good habits. The Bible speaks of temperance or self-control being a fruit of the Spirit. We We will have more discipline in our lives as we get closer to God, but we try to do those things in our own strength. Do you have a struggle with sin this morning? Are you struggling with something that you keep going back to? It's become a part of your life. We all struggle with sin on a daily basis, but you know what I'm talking about, that besetting sin. It's holding you back. I had a phone call with a young man this week that talked to me about something from years ago in his life, and he said, God's given me sustained victory. He said, but, but I, I need to get this right. It's, it's been eating at me, and I haven't fully gotten it right with the people that it affected. What is that? That's someone understanding. We have to acknowledge our sin. Do you have something in your life that you're struggling with? Here's my encouragement for you. You don't need to get stronger. You need a savior. Sin can only, become, can only be overcome by God's grace in our lives. Romans 5, verse number 6 says, For when you were, we were yet without strength, without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. It's not that you need to get stronger to overcome that sin. You need a Savior. You, you don't need to try to be good. You need God's grace. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. You don't need more personal righteousness. You need God's providential righteousness. But we are all, as an ungodly, clean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and all we do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. Our righteousness is no righteousness at all. We need to come to the end of ourselves and say, God, I need you. Oh, how I need you. You and I don't need man's wisdom to clean up our act. We need God's word that can cleanse to the depths of our soul. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to Thy word, You and I don't need a new self-help book. We need salvation where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. It is only God's grace that can give you sustained victory. It is only when we walk in the Spirit that will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Here is the reality, church, since the Garden of Eden. For some 6,000 years, every person who has ever been born on planet Earth has struggled with these eight realities of sin in their lives. And in in the lives of every person around them. Whether it's an unknown ordinary man or a giant of the faith like Abraham. But some 2,000 years ago, God divinely intervened in our struggle and provided the cure for the terminal cancer of sin in our lives for all time. He sent His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, to come to this earth to live a sinless life so that He could pay the penalty for your sin, to forgive you of every sin you've ever committed and ever will commit, to take the penalty of eternal death and give us the free gift of eternal life in heaven. And then, in His goodness and in His mercy, He doesn't just provide the eternal remedy to sin but He gives us through the power of the Spirit, the power of His Son, the ability to get victory over those besetting sins in our lives. As we mortify the flesh and walk in the Spirit, as we feast on the truths of Scripture, as we acknowledge our weakness and die daily so that we may seek His strength, He allows us to walk in the Spirit so that we'll not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. What a good and gracious God we serve And a daily thing. God, I need you again today. It is only your grace that can give me the strength to be the husband I need to be. It is only your goodness in my life, as we sang about this morning, that can allow me to be the pastor that I need to be. God, I can't do this in my own power. God, I acknowledge oh wretched man that I am. The closer I get to you, the more I realize how unworthy that I am. God, I own and acknowledge and accept my sin. And God, even more than that, I own and acknowledge and accept your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness. And God, help me to walk more in your spirit and to get more into your word and to Allow the Spirit of God to control me, not the, the strength of the flesh. It is only the grace of God that can help us to overcome our sins. So here's the question, and we might make it to lunch at eleven thirty if you don't talk to me too long in the lobby. Have you received redemption? Have you received the forgiveness of sins? Eternal remedy of sin, Jesus Christ, through Abraham, through the promised son Isaac, through his seed, the eternal remedy for sin was paid for by Christ 2,000 years ago on the cross for you and for me. Have you received that free gift of eternal life? If you haven't, make today the day of your salvation. But if you have that settled, you have the eternal remedy for sin already applied to your account, praise God, but are you walking? in the daily victory that God wants you to have here on earth. If you're not, it is not, I gotta pull myself up by my own bootstraps, I gotta get stronger, I've gotta turn over a new leaf, I've gotta go to a seminar, I've gotta get stronger? No, I've got to get humbler and say, God, I need you today. God, you give me the strength there, and God, when that temptation comes, set up these guidelines and these guardrails, and God, help me, help me, dear God, to to stay away from those things. Are you walking daily in the sin-conquering power of the Spirit? The Puritan John Owen wrote a book many years ago, I think hundreds of years ago now, called Mortify the Flesh, and he said this, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. I'm not talking about forgiveness of sins, eternal life, heaven. I'm talking about this daily race we run. Don't let it grow, and when it does and it starts to get roots out, pull it up. Go to Scripture and, and bring godly people into your lives, and help people with accountability and help and prayer, and walk through those things. Here's what I want to tell you today. God can give you eternal life. He died to give you eternal life. He wants to give you eternal life. If you don't have it, you can have it today. And here's what else I want to tell you you can have victory. God wants you to have victory, and if you're not having victory, it's not because his grace isn't powerful enough, it's because we've allowed our flesh to be too powerful. God can give us victory. He did it for Abraham. The grace all through this passage, he spared Abimelech, he spared Sarah, he spared Abraham, he, he, he blessed and spared the women in the house. All throughout it, he kept his redemption plan right on track where it was supposed to be in the midst and in spite of the sinful actions of Abraham. This week, if you're not saved, get saved. If you are saved, this week, let's try like Paul said. Paul said, I die. When, church? When? When? Why did he die daily? Because the flesh is a battle every day. He mortified the flesh every day. wake up this week and say, God, I give it to you, God, I, I want you to guide me today, and God, you lead my steps, and God, I, I'm struggling with that anger, God, I'm struggling with that lust, God, I'm struggling with that slothfulness, God, I'm struggling with that pride, God, you know that's in my life, and I'm sorry that it's there, I'm, I'm working on it, but God, to be honest, I'm not strong enough, and I need your strength today. God, let me spend some time in your Word, and when you're walking throughout the day, Lord, thank you, I I saw that opportunity to give in there, and God, you gave me the strength to resist temptation, and, and resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. You gave me that strength there, God, and it's a daily journey, and you know what happens? Like anything, just like physical muscles, when you work them out a little bit, they get stronger and stronger, and stuff that was really hard early on gets easier and easier. Same thing is true with our spiritual muscles. As we mature in Christ, as we become closer to Him, the stuff that would get us off track so easily, not because we're now good and I'm strong, no, but the Spirit of God, I'm closer to Him, and that temptation loses much of its power. Anybody, how many of you in here, you have a dog? You have a dog? How many of have a dog? Our dog is not very well-trained. He's kind of dumb. <laughs> Anybody have a really smart, well-trained dog in here? Anybody have a... Only one. Okay. <laughs> the rest of us have dumb dogs that are not very well-behaved. Have you ever seen a really well-behaved dog maybe in someone's home or, or in, uh, on, on YouTube or, something, or America's Funniest Home Videos or something like that? And they'll take like a piece of meat or a, tr- a treat or something, and they'll tell the dog to sit, and they'll put the treat on the dog's nose, and the dog wants that treat so badly but it will not give in to its desires, why? Because it loves its master more. It's the love of the master that keeps it from fulfilling its own selfish desires in a dog. He doesn't quite understand all of that, but what he knows is that's my master and he's he's never led me wrong. And whenever I obey him, good things happen. I'm gonna follow my master and everything. And you can see sometimes some dogs, they'll start shaking like, I need this food. But they look beyond the treat, they look beyond the temptation, and they look to the eyes of the master, and they wait, and they know the master will not lead them wrong. They were not able to resist temptation because they're a smart dog, and they have great self-will. Dogs don't have that. They were able to resist temptation because they have a great relationship with the master. And you and I, we can't trust in our flesh, place no confidence in the flesh. Well, I've got really strong flesh. All of our righteousness is its filthy rags. No, it's got to be a love for the master that's stronger than our love for that desire. And we say, God, would you give me the strength, the victory, the grace to overcome this sin in my life? Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.